Thank you very much, Brian. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, this is a very exciting time to talk about HIV prevention and in specific PrEP. And, um, Brian and I were having a very vigorous discussion just in the past three minutes about how PrEP has changed and evolved and what it will mean for people practicing at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and in the community in New Hampshire. So I, I do encourage you to be very interactive, interrupt me, um, disagree with me, whatever you need to do to get your questions answered about this topic um, as I convey what um, is basically the evidence base for PrEP and what's happening in terms of practice. So just to get a sense for who is in the room today, um, who here is a physician? Okay, how about a physician assistant or an MP, <coughs> registered nurses, and then, um, other clinicians or people involved in HIV in general? Okay, great. So it's good to have a broad spectrum. So um, I'll assume um, some knowledge, but, but a diversity in the background here. Okay, here are my potential competing interests that Brian had mentioned. So let me get a little bit more granular sense of what people's experiences with PrEP are in this room. So 
Um, sometimes they do audience response, but uh, we don't have it set up here, so we'll do hand raising. It's totally optional. You don't have to participate, but I encourage you to. So who's discussed prep with a patient where you brought it up with the patient first? Okay, so good show of hands. It's about a quarter of the room. How about with a patient brought it up first? We've got the same, maybe a little bit more or less. Um, and who's actually prescribed prep first? <coughs> okay, so one, two, three, four, about four or five people. So a small fraction of the room. And um, everyone else will assume it's none of the above. So um, let me give you a real case from my practice um, as an ID physician in Boston. And this was a 31-year-old male who presented to my clinic to discuss PrEP. They talked about this with their primary care clinician. He thought that um, referral to a specialist would make sense, given the clinician wasn't that comfortable talking about PrEP at the time this happened. So the um, patient said he was in a long-term open partnership with a man who's HIV uninfected, and he has other sexual partners. He's met them online through dating apps um, and through the internet. And he's also been to bathhouses both in New England, and he has a job that takes him all around the country, and he's been to bathhouses in other parts of the country and met partners that way. In terms of his sexual behaviors, he said he's um, generally a top or someone who has insertive anal sex, um, but has had receptive anal sex or as a bottom. Um, also has had oral sex with his partners has used condoms sometimes, but not 100% of the time. And he's never had a sexually transmitted infection, or STI. Um, he has about two to three drinks prior to sex, sometimes, other times, uh, no alcohol. Doesn't drink more heavily than that, ever. He's never used injection drugs, never used crystal methamphetamine or other club drugs. And um, he went to a, a publicly funded STI clinic five weeks before seeing me. And this visit was about uh, three or four weeks ago now. And at the um, STI clinic, they did HIV, antibody, and STI screen. He said they did everything. Every kind of screen was all negative. They said it's good to go. Nothing to worry about. About five weeks ago. And then he had um, non-condom um, sex. Uh, on, I saw him on a Wednesday. This was on the Friday before seeing me. And um, otherwise, no sex in the month before. And he feels totally fine. No symptoms. Totally normal exam in my office today. So um, in addition to exploring barriers to condom use, what would be your recommendation regarding PrEP for this particular patient? Um, and I say in addition to exploring barriers to condom use because I'm not going to talk a lot about condoms today because we're going to focus mostly on biobehavioral prevention of PrEP. But I will say that condoms, when used correctly and consistently, are highly effective at preventing HIV acquisition, highly effective at preventing transmission of other sexually transmitted infections like syphilis, gonorrhea, um, chlamydia. Um, but we know that the rate of new infections in this country has not budged in over a decade despite free availability of condoms. The idea is what do we need in addition to condoms to reduce HIV transmission. So um, condoms also prevent unintended pregnancy when that's relevant. So condoms are good and they're part of comprehensive prevention with PrEP. But um, and that's, I think, a good starting point to talk about prevention but we'll focus on why PrEP may be an additive in terms of benefit. Okay, so thinking back to the patient, would you prescribe PrEP now, this person in your office? Would you recommend PrEP kind of in general, but you need more information, such as more testing information or some other information? Um, would you not recommend PrEP for this person or some other? Other is always the right answer. It's a flexible response. So um, who would prescribe PrEP now for this person? Okay, nobody here prescribed PrEP to this person. Okay, um, how about recommend PrEP but need more testing before prescription? Okay, a lot of hands went up there. Um, how about they do not recommend PrEP for this particular individual? Okay, no one says don't recommend PrEP. How about other? 
Uh, do you have another? Okay, just try to be controversial. I like that. Because you know another. So, um, some of you said um, number two, walk me through your thought process. Who would want to prescribe perhaps you need more information? I saw hands over here. He's at risk of HIV um, infection ongoing, and so I think he'd be a good candidate in general. I don't know whether it would be safe for him to get uh, PrEP yet. Would want to see his creatinine. This recent um, sexual <clears throat> exposure makes you want to do more testing for HIV, although my guess is whatever a day it is that you wanted to start PrEP, there probably is a day week or two prior to that he's had sex and if you waited for the first perfect window when you were one hundred percent sure you'd probably never start prep because you never got there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not I think that would be, be a smaller reason to be testing this yeah. Okay. Brilliantly articulated. I thank you for speaking out as a, as a volunteer. So you want to know more about his creatinine because maybe we'll talk about something about tenofovir, one of the components of PrEP as it is today, which is tenofovir and cytidine, two HIV medications in one tablet taken once daily. This is for HIV uninfected people at high risk of becoming infected, just to make sure we're all talking about the same type of PrEP now. Um, tenofovir, we know from lots of use in HIV infected persons, can cause um, renal harms over the long term, and so it's important to know does this person have a normal renal function before starting PrEP, and that's what the CDC guidelines would say as well. So um, I agree that testing would be very helpful before the person actually started putting PrEP into their body. Um, some people would say, well, why don't you prescribe it today, do some lab work, and say, don't start it until we talk and I get the lab back. Um, and that's another um, option here. Um, any other, and you also mentioned making sure someone's in a period where they're not already HIV infected, which is a, a, a challenging for someone who may be having sex more regularly, but um, the, it's a good point. You want to make sure people who use PrEP are not already infected because the two medications in PrEP are not full HIV treatment regimen, so that may be a perfect storm for HIV resistance to emerge. So very good point. Is there anyone um, who, who would prescribe PrEP now? Anyone at all? Okay, well, I gave the same exact question of two weeks ago to the UMass HIV conference. And I can tell you about half the group said one. They said they would prescribe PrEP today. About, about half, maybe, maybe a third said today, two-thirds said they would wait for the reasons that you mentioned. And other people said, well, I, I'm worried that people might get lost to care. This is a person who had a primary care visit, and now they're coming to see a specialist. That's a big schlep to come see another doctor. They don't even know me. They're going to talk about very intimate details. Um, if the timing is right, let's start PrEP now so we don't lose the opportunity to start PrEP. Um, and you know, if we have someone who had uh, uh, problems with their kidney function or uh, someone who's already infected once in a while, then you know, it's a small price to pay. So these are very talented, experienced people there who have differences of opinion. Um, I can tell you, um, as a speaker, I get to cheat when I give these cases. Um, the reason, I, I think one or two are both reasonable, with the caveat that if you choose one, I would wait, tell people to wait, not to actually start taking the medicines until all the baseline lab values, exactly the reasons you mentioned, are back. Um, um, this person actually um, had some chronic kidney issues that made it <coughs> essential to know their creatinine and their kidney function before starting PrEP, and actually to consult with a nephrologist. Um, this person was born with one kidney, so um, that was a little bit tricky, um, but I think one or two are both reasonable as you think as a clinician about how to actually do this in practice, which is half the goal today, evidence and practice. Um, so if you don't like it, call UMass and get them on the softball field and really, really duke it out with them. We need more concern.
That's right, and then the Canadians need a lot more time. Um, but it was a very vigorous discussion we had, and they've been very experienced clinicians, and so I thought it was good to hear about that. Quick reminder about the HIV epidemiology nationally, and also in New England, it, it's fairly reflective. I can't tell you off the top of my head around the Dartmouth or New Hampshire region, but you can probably educate me. About two-thirds of new infections attributed to male-to-male sexual contact, another 17% heterosexual contact, 6% injection drug use, 3% MSM, men who have sex with men and injection drug use, and 10% other. So any new HIV prevention strategy that's going to bend the curve of the HIV epidemic, where we haven't had really any change in HIV incidence for over a decade, is going to have to work for men who have sex with men, but also for all the groups listed on this pie chart. So I think any patient who comes into the clinic could conceivably be someone who would benefit from PrEP. And the idea is to do routine, comprehensive risk assessments for all patients in primary care. This is the dream, at least. Clinicians are busy, but this is the dream, is to figure out who would benefit from PrEP. Um, but knowing epidemiology can be helpful, especially as PrEP is now in its kind of early days and in terms of the populations that have been advocating for PrEP, including um, men with sex with men. So I'd be remiss in talking to a group of HIV specialists if we didn't talk about biobehavioral prevention in general. And so we see a lot of people who have HIV infection, and treating people with HIV infection earlier prevents the spread of HIV to their sexual partners. We know that from some big randomized controlled studies, HB10052 study, um, where they randomized couples for immediate um, antiretroviral therapy for the HIV-infected partner versus waiting until their CD4 count dropped below 350. They found a 96% relative risk reduction in transmission early on, and then over time, that number was readjusted to about 93%. Very powerful intervention to prevent forward transmission, treating people early. The START study, which was published in the New England Journal a couple of months ago, we know that it's beneficial for the health of individuals with HIV infection to start earlier instead of waiting for the CD4 count drop. So everything is aligned for HIV specialists to try and encourage people to start HIV treatment earlier for their own health and for HIV transmission. What about in the real world? That's, those are randomized controlled studies. How effective is treatment as prevention in the real world? Do we even need PrEP or should we just treat everyone early with HIV? Well, this is a study called the um, Partner Study, and it hasn't been fully published. Only interim results were published at the Retroviral Conference 2014. Um, and what they did is they, they said, let's get couples who are um, serodiscordant. One member has HIV, the other does not. And um, the member with HIV is on therapy and suppressed, reliably suppressed, and adherent. Um, but the couples are also having non-condom sex. And let's see what kind of transmission they can see there. Kind of a really real-world treatment prevention study. So they enrolled about 800, a little under 800 serodiscordant couples. You had to have some non-condom sex to get into the study. They didn't want people who were 100% condom users. They wanted to see in the real world where people don't always do this um, as um, would be most protective. You had to be suppressed with a viral of under 200 to get in the study. They had about 40% same-sex couples, almost all male-male couples. Um, and um, I don't know if Brian or others were at this talk, but I, I thought it was really powerful. They put up the slide. There were no infections, zero, in the interim analysis. And uh, you can see in the graphs here, um, this is the rate of, of couple transmission per 100 couple following years, couple years of follow-up, excuse me. And this is couples having any sex. They had almost 900 couple years of follow-up. And then anal sex, uh, a little bit less, 374 couple years of follow-up. A lot of data on couples. They estimated it was like 15,000 individual sex acts over the course of the study that they had um, documented. And they saw no infections over, over the, this time course. Does that mean there cannot be transmissions? 
Well, no, I don't think anyone would say it's non, it's totally zero. It's probably non-zero. We know you can isolate infectious virus from the semen of people who have fully uh, suppressed HIV. Um, but um, at least the point estimate was very reassuring that it was zero. Now, in, in terms of the statistics here, trying to get the mouse here, there we go. Um, there's a 95% confidence interval on the point estimate. And so for the rate of transmission within couples, um, 100 couple followers, you can see for anal or any sex, the 95% confidence intervals go out a ways. So for the 10-year risk of within couple transmission, if you follow couples for 10 years, how many um, um, events would you see for 100 couples? The worst case scenario for anal sex, couples having anal sex is one in 10, 10%. That's still a lot. Um, so again, this is not zero. Waiting for the final results to be published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's very exciting results that transmission is gonna be probably very low. Um, and one of the questions that comes up a lot from practicing clinicians, what's the added benefit of PrEP if you have couples just like this? And the answer is there are no data. We don't know. There's no study where they've done this and added PrEP in. But it's probably going to be of limited benefit. And again, I think that we don't think it's going to be zero transmission. So there's probably going to be personal preference and risk tolerance that we have to assess as clinicians about whether people who know this data still want to use PrEP. So um, that's some of the background um, in terms of treatment prevention. And why PrEP? Well, in this country, we know that not everyone with HIV is treated with a suppressed viral load. So even that partner study isn't necessarily the real world as it is in 2015. This is the HIV treatment cascade for the, the nation based on data that are about three years old from CDC. But um, the idea is basically the same. We have about 1.2 million with HIV. 82% have been diagnosed. 66% of that original number linked to HIV care. Over a third retained in HIV care, only a third on antiretroviral therapy, and only a quarter with a suppressed viral load. And I got some numbers from the Mass DPH about two months ago, where this was actually 76%, and this was 64%, which is really nice. And anyone know what that last number is locally here? Any yeah, idea? It's no, that's within our program. Okay, so probably something like two thirds or so. And actually, this number is probably about a third now, based on updated estimates or so. So, still about two thirds of the people in this country do not have a suppressed viral load. So, all the stuff I told you about treatment prevention doesn't apply to them yet. So, we have a lot of work to do to get people diagnosed in care, retaining care on therapy to prevent HIV transmission. So until that time, if people are at risk for having sex with people with HIV or sharing works in terms of injection drug use, we really need to um, think about PrEP. It's something you can do right now for people to prevent HIV transmission. So does PrEP work? Well, let me give you some of the data from the major. Yes. Yes, please interrupt. Yes. Looking at the cascade, I've often wondered about the PrEP cascade.
create that, you know, the, the people who advocate for option number one in your question are making that point. Yes. Do we have any sense of that? Like, you know, it's kind of kept out of secret. How many people do we just not create a system that allows them to get what they need? It's a great question. Very prescient, too. Um, so the CDC published these vital signs reports in MMWR. They, they published two vital signs things about two weeks ago, two pieces on PrEP. One was the New York State Medicaid experience, and one was sort of national numbers, how many people might benefit from PrEP today. And so they estimate 1.2 million people. This is the CDC estimate. Um, and they break it down by about one in four um, MSM in this country who are sexually active and they benefit from PrEP, about one in five people using injection drugs, and then about 0.4% of all heterosexuals. So, um, you know, they, they estimate, you can, you can do, in the article, the vital signs, just Google CDC vital signs prep, and it comes up with these. It will um, go through the subdivisions by each risk category, the numbers. For MSM, for example, it's like 492,000 um, um, people who may benefit who are not yet on prep. So, but 1.2 million is the big number that was the media splash from that. So, um, whether that's accurate, hard to know, but I think it tells us we have a lot of work to do. And um, Brian and I were talking before the talk about who is going to be prescribing PrEP, and it's a question of, of scale-up. Can HIV specialists alone um, be the only people prescribing PrEP and still reach 1.2 million people? Unlikely, given capacity in HIV clinics where there are plenty of people with HIV infection, too. Um, so the, the goal in the long term is to get primary care clinicians engaged in PrEP provision as well to do what you're saying, address the PrEP cascade. There's an article in Clinical Infectious Diseases a couple of weeks ago um, by a group, the Emory Group, looking at the PrEP cascade in Atlanta, and um, it paints a very um, grim, pessimistic picture about the likelihood of getting people on PrEP within the context of the um, southeastern United States today, given provider awareness, kind of blue state, red state, um, access to um, Medicaid expansion issues. I encourage you to take a look at that to get more in-depth. Um, Okay, so getting back to whether PrEP works. Here um, is the kind of scorecard of all the RCTs, randomized controlled studies of PrEP. This represents tens of thousands of people all over the globe. Let me briefly walk you <coughs> through these so you just have a sense of where the conversation started in terms of evidence. So the top row here, each row represents one of the major studies that have been published. This is the IPREC study, which randomized about 2,500 men or transgender women who have sex with men to use daily um, PrEP with FTC tenofovir, or Truvada is the brand name in this country, one pill once a day, um, versus placebo. And they found that there was about a 42% overall risk reduction in terms of HIV transmission over the course of the study. Modest result, but very exciting for biobehavioral prevention, where there hadn't been any major um, home runs in, in quite some time. And um, what they found is only about half the people in the study randomized to use active drug had drugs detected in their blood, because they drew people's blood to test for adherence. Um, so even with only half the people using um, drug, they found a 42% risk reduction. So they went back and said, um, post hoc, well, people who had detectable levels of drug, what was the uh, protection found? And there it was over 90% protective, so highly, highly protective if people had detectable drug levels. Um, so Partners Prep was looking at HIV serious court couples in Sub-Saharan Africa, 4,500 or so such couples, um, and um, they found about 67 to 75% risk reduction. They also had an arm with just tenofovir alone, that was this number, and then FTC tenofovir together is this number, 75%. And then among people who had detectable levels of drug, the um, risk reduction um, was 90% with FTC tenofovir. They found a much higher level of people who had detectable levels of drug, 
probably because of some built-in support from being part of long-term couples. These are all pseudo-squared couples. But the bottom line here, too, is very powerful reduction if you were able to adhere to the PrEP medication. TDF2 looked at heterosexual men and women in Botswana who were not in stable partnerships but had concurrent or sequential multiple partners, and they found a 78% risk reduction among people who had detectable levels of drug. Thai IDU was looking at people using injection drugs in, in uh, Thailand, 74%. And then these two bottom studies, FemPrep and Voice, were looking at young women in sub-Saharan Africa with extraordinarily high HIV incidence rates in their community, 8 9% some of these communities per year incidence. And they found no efficacy at all. The studies were stopped early for futility, which is very disheartening. And people said, gee, does PrEP not work in, in women? Are there bio, biological reasons? This isn't going to be an option for women. Um, and what they went back and, and looked at the adherence data, it looked like only about a quarter or so of the women had any um, evidence they had taken um, the medications at all. So it's very hard to demonstrate efficacy with such low levels of adherence. And um, the Partners PrEP study, fortunately, was, was a large enough study that was powered to look at the efficacy by gender. And they found that it was efficacious for both um, men and women who were in the study. So um, biologically, believe that it does work for both groups, um, but um, um, it was whole host of reasons that the women in the FemPrep and Voice studies didn't take their medications, including they live in communities where there's lots of stigma against HIV. They thought people would think they had HIV if they took the medications. They were accessing the study to get health care. They could not otherwise access in their communities. So a lot of reasons people entered the study but didn't feel comfortable, didn't want to take the medications. And at the time, no one knew if PrEP works. So you can understand why people would be hesitant to actually um, engage. So basically, the bottom line is PrEP seems to work and work very, very well if you're adherent to it. So what about the real world? And these are randomized controlled studies and lots of resources, lots of counseling. Condoms were provided freely to all these participants and people um, connected with their counselors. Maybe um, there was a lot of risk reduction from the condom use and not the PrEP. Um, so people said, let's look at a real world study. And um, in the UK, they did a study called the PROUD study where they um, randomized men of sex of men presenting to STI clinics in the UK. I think it was something like 13 or so clinics around the UK. Um, this was totally real world. These people just showed up to get STI care, and they said, do you want to be in the study? And they didn't think it was ethical to give people placebo, because we knew about the IPREX results at the time they started the study. But they said, let's see if um, people who were given PrEP increased their sexual risk behaviors, which is an important um, um, concept. People call that risk compensation. If you um, have a certain diet, and then you get a statin, do you eat more steak? That's risk compensation. If you have a car with seatbelts, we put in airbags, people stop using their seatbelts. So people said, gee, with PrEP, will people stop using um, condoms, and will they increase their risk overall um, because they're using PrEP? So in the UK, they wanted to test, test this. So what they did, instead of a placebo arm, is they said to um, the men who, who entered the clinic in the study, half of you will give you PrEP today, and um, we'll observe you um, for HIV acquisition and STI acquisition and, and other behavioral factors. And the other half will be on the waiting list for a year, where we'll just observe you. You know, keep coming in every three months, just like the people on PrEP. But we won't actually give you PrEP today, but after one year, you'll have free access to PrEP. And so we'll have a period of time where there's a group using PrEP and not, and then a period of time where both groups are using PrEP. So they can kind of figure out how people's behavior change, depending on which group they're in. Um, they were going to enroll 5,000 men. They powered the study based on that efficacy results from the IPREX. And then after about a year, um, they had enrolled about 500 plus um, men in the study. They stopped the study. 
um, an independent data safety monitoring board said it's no longer ethical, we have to give everyone PrEP, because in the immediate arm, there were three infections over the first 48 weeks, and this is the time since the study started, week zero, week 48, out to week 84, and these bars, each bar um, represents an HIV acquisition event, a new diagnosis of HIV, um, and this is the last negative antibody test, and then the first positive antibody test, or what the bars represent. So they had um, three people acquire HIV in the median arm, and they had 20 people in the delayed arm while they were waiting you know, for a year to access PrEP. So that's an 86% efficacy, and they said, again, this is no longer ethical. We have to um, give people PrEP in both arms. And they calculated the number needed to treat, which is a great number for primary care clinicians and any clinician who works in preventive medicine, because we calculate that for how many people need to take an aspirin to prevent one MI, how many people um, need to take a statin to prevent MIs, things like that. So 13 um, was the number needed to treat, which is a great number. Caveat here, this is a population where 50% of the men who entered the study had had a bacterial STI diagnosed in the year prior to entering the study. So it's a group that was having very high rates of sexually transmitted infections. So you have to think, is the population that I'm taking care of, or the individuals I'm taking care of, belong to this particular population, or else that number needed to treat doesn't fully apply. So caveat with some of the epidemiological math. Um, so what about during the course of the study? Was there risk compensation? Did people increase their risk behaviors? The way they got at that was they looked at the group um, of men who were randomized to the immediate PrEP arm versus the deferred PrEP arm, and they looked at the rates of sexually transmitted infections that were detected over the course of the study, and they looked to see if there was a difference. Um, I'll tell you at the outset, there were no differences between the two arms, but the numbers themselves are quite informative. Um, this is any STI that's gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis, bacterial STIs over the course of the study, which was just over a year. In the immediate arm, 57% of the men had an STI diagnosed. In the deferred arm, 50%, so not statistically different, even though a little bit higher in the immediate arm. Gonorrhea, 39%, and 37%. Chlamydia, 30%, 22%. Syphilis, 11%, 9%, and then rectal gonorrhea or chlamydia, about a third of both groups. So we know from epidemiologic studies that among MSM, having a diagnosis of syphilis or rectal bacterial STI, very strong epidemiologic predictors of incident HIV. And there have been some great studies out of New York looking at this. Um, so this is a group that, that we think would be at very high risk for HIV acquisition. And we know from the deferred arm here that lots of men unfortunately did become infected over the first year of the study. So the, the bottom line here is that it doesn't look like there was risk compensation, even though these numbers are a little bit higher than these numbers. So you, you may say there's a small signal of that. But in both groups, there were very high levels of risk. But the levels of HIV infection were quite different. So people have talked about um, epidemiologic synergy between bacterial STIs like syphilis and um, HIV. And we know that syphilis potentiates the risk for HIV acquisition or transmission. So PrEP can uncouple that link in terms of bacterial STIs and HIV. And um, I think that's beautifully illustrated in this study how even in groups where levels of bacterial STIs are quite frequent, PrEP can reduce HIV transmission dramatically. Now, as, as clinicians who prescribe PrEP, one other very important message is as PrEP gets scaled up and utilized, we have to be very aggressive about screening and counseling, testing and treating for bacterial STIs. You know, in this population, this is not a, a rare event. This is a very common event. So you have to be comfortable as clinicians talking about STIs, screening for people at all extragenital sites where they may come in contact with um, bacterial STIs, and really 
stepping up our game in terms of, of addressing bacterial STIs in the context of PrEP use. That's the PROUD study, which is really uh, helpful. Even more real world than the PROUD study is a study we published in Clinical Infectious Diseases um, in September by the Kaiser Group in San Francisco. And um, they basically had a big HMO, um, Kaiser, kind of like other HMOs, um, um, very well run in general. And they um, ended up having about 677 um, persons, almost all men of sex with men, who accessed PrEP as part of routine clinical care. These were not part of any study. There's no informed consent. This was a totally observational study about their experience with PrEP. Starting in um, July of 2012, going to February of this year, um, these graphs represent the number of referrals as a solid bar. Intakes uh, is the bigger dash lines, and then the dots are number of people initiating PrEP. So um, they basically had 777 initiators of PrEP, and they followed them for about half a year on average. They found no new infections, zero. So they published this as the, a kind of a brief report, an early experience with PrEP. And this was you know, made the New York Times. This is very big news um, from the Kaiser Group, showing that in a real world, we can do this and have what we would have expected a number of infections in this population because um, over the course of the, of, of the study, or not the study, but the observation period, about half the men had a bacterial STI, kind of like the PROUD study. So in a real-world setting, we think that this also uncouples the link between bacterial sexually transmitted infections and HIV acquisition. So very powerful results. What about the um, potential harms associated with PrEP? Because this has been quite a um, positive conversation about PrEP so far. Um, what about the potential harms? I think it's important to be realistic about what they may be um, so um, we do the right things for patients. So um, the, the studies, and these are from the randomized controlled studies, have looked at whether or not there was actual decrease, decreases in um, renal function among people using PrEP in these randomized controlled studies. And um, these are data from the partners PrEP study, so again, 4,500 or so serious couples in Africa. And they looked at the mean estimated GFR change, so glomerular filtration rate, that's a measure of kidney function, from the baseline, um, and then after um, 36 months since randomization, so up to three years of follow-up. What were the changes in GFR they saw? And the blue here are this placebo arm. Um, this is the Chinofavir alone arm. Um, this um, darker black bars. And these mustard yellow bars are FTC Tenofovir, most relevant for what we're talking about today. And um, you can see that over the course of the study, there was a very small um, decline in estimated GFR from baseline in the yellow bar group, which is the group that was using FTC Tenofovir. But whether this is clini clinically significant, even though it's statistically significant, is not totally clear. Because if you look at it, this is a change of negative um, 5 in the estimated GFR. So if you started at 75 and you went down to 70, um, and you can see here the change was from 0 to about negative 2. So starting at 75 and going down to 73. I think as clinicians, I, I would see that number and think, not a big deal. These are large populations, so you can detect subtle differences with statistical significance. Um, even in the placebo group, there was actually a change uh, excuse me, detected here. They started higher than the other groups for reasons I'm not sure about, but there was a decrease over time. So bottom line is renal-wise, it looks like very uh, minimal changes in GFR. But to get into these studies, you had to have a GFR over 60, meaning you had to have 
normal kidney function and no kidney disease. So this tells you something about a healthy population. But what about the real world where people may have hypertension or diabetes or other issues, maybe NSAID use that can affect GFR? Uh, I don't know that we can fully translate this to the real world setting. In my own um, practice around PrEP, I have come across people with, as I told you, one kidney or other renal diseases, um, hypertension, which we know is quite common in the general population. So I um, definitely have to still be alert to the fact that people who have severe renal issues may not fit these data. But for a healthy population, they're fairly reassuring. What about bone mineral density? We also know that. Great question. So how often to check? A creatinine, if, if at all. So um, CDC, as we'll talk about a little bit briefly, they recommend baseline creatinine, just as you mentioned, we totally agree, and then checking it um, every six months or so. Now, I've read the CDC PrEP guidelines from cover to cover because, you know, I'm obsessed with PrEP. I don't know that most people will do that, but I can tell you they're, they're really well written. There are some um, subtle discrepancies where they say one thing in one part, another thing in another part, in terms of the exact nuances about how to do this. They say, well, you can check it after a month, but you, or you can check it every six months. And if people have threats to renal health, such as hypertension or proteinuria, you know, then maybe you want to check it every three months. So there's some flexibility. Most of it, I think, falls right in line with the way clinicians are trained to think about what would ratchet up your concern and therefore your testing regimen. Um, but the kind of gestalt is baseline and then every six months for a generally healthy person is what they've recommended, which I think is reasonable in terms of how frequently to do it, and what are the other tests you have to do? Are you already seeing people, or are you bringing them in just for a creatinine? Well, I think pairing with other things you need to do makes a lot of sense, given you don't want to make it too onerous for clinicians or patients. So, um, so that's what the CDC says for now. CDC says every six months or so. Um, and up to date says the same thing for, for what it's worth. And they think every three months if they have renal threats. So, you agree, oh, do I agree? Yeah. I, I think that's reasonable, actually. I mean, I think, I think it's also fairly early days for real scale-up of PrEP, and there'll be more observational studies that give us a true sense about, in heterogeneous patient populations, what do we actually see in terms of changes. And um, I do my clinical care um, at Beth Israel and also at um, Harvard Vanguard Atrius, which is a um, kind of an HMO in eastern Massachusetts. Um, and then um, my research at Fenway Community Health and the Fenway Institute and um, the Fenway Institute is an LGBT specialized center that's been doing, um, as part of the IPREC study, they've been doing PrEP for many years um, as part of studies. And there are 1,000 people who've been prescribed PrEP now at, at the Fenway, which is a huge number um, um, compared to Harvard Vanguard right across the street, which has about 30 times the number of patients. And there are probably about 30, 40, or 50 people who've been prescribed it. So very different kind of early adopter kinetics here in terms of PrEP. Um, and so we're looking at the Fenway experience in terms of real-world use, busy clinicians where this is totally outside of the bounds of studies, kind of like that Kaiser study, but trying to parse out you know, issues in terms of monitoring. I mean, do people actually get monitoring every three months, even if you want to, or do people miss visits? How does it all pan out? So in the next year, two or three, I think more um, centers will report their experiences, and then I think we'll be able to adjust from those early guidelines. That's my hunch. Um, so what about bone mineral density? Um, we know, again, from people with HIV infection using tenofovir, it can have a decrease in bone mineral density over time. And so people looked at that as sort of sub-studies in some of these PrEP randomized controlled studies. Um, and what they found is that 
um, they did find statistically significant decreases in bone mineral density, even over relatively short-term usage of PrEP on the order of um, 18, 20, and 30 months. Um, um, but whether they're clinically significant, just like with the creatinine story, is hard to know because they're very small changes that they detected. So this is from the TDF2 study in Botswana. And um, they looked at um, up and through month 30 what kinds of differences in the PrEP arms of these studies versus the placebo arms in terms of bone mineral density. And they looked at forearms, spine, and hip. These are DEXA scans, just like you would do in primary care um, here or in Boston. And they found um, in the forearm a negative 0.84% bone mineral density change in those two populations. The spine and the hip a little bit greater, 1.6 and 1.5%. And again, whether this clinically makes a difference over time. It seemed like the differences um, came out early and then seemed to plateau as opposed to a progressive um, um, widening of bone mineral density between placebo and active arms. Um, but I think we need more data um, to make sure that this isn't causing, gonna cause lots of osteopenia, osteoporosis. Um, there were no differences in fracture rates in any of these studies up until about three years of follow-up. Um, but again, long-term data are gonna be important. So for me to take home here, the CDC does not recommend routine DEXA scanning at all, but for me, if someone has known osteoporosis, which is rare um, um, for some of the people who may be um, benefiting from this, but lots of people coming in for PrEP are in age groups where this is more common. So um, for people who we know have osteoporosis or high risk for it based on family history or other risk factors, I think it's reasonable to consider changing, you know, kind of stepping up your, um, your, your monitoring with DEXA scanning at some point. But CDC says not generally recommended use clinician judgment, and I agree with that so far. What about drug resistance and other potential harms? People worry if we have people using PrEP and they become HIV infected, will that um, uh, lead to increased um, selection for and dissemination of drug-resistant viral strains in the community? which we know is something that can compromise um, HIV um, treatment um, regimens. So they've looked at this in a number of the randomized controlled studies I had mentioned. <laughs> this is from the Partners PrEP study. They looked at uh, whether there was drug resistant present at the greater than 1% level according to treatment arm at the time of seroconversion. The table's a little complicated, so let me walk you through here. So um, they basically looked at 121 people in that study of 4,500 or so couples who became HIV infected over the course of the study, nine of them had detectable um, levels of drug resistance at 1% or greater populations. So with deep, deep sequencing, you can find more than this, but at um, levels that they felt were clinically significant, nine of the people who became infected had resistance. So two of them were in the placebo arm, which we know cannot be related to PrEP use unless there was sharing of the medications across arms, which I don't know that was a strong signal that that's happening. That's probably baseline community levels of transmitted drug resistance. So we can't blame PrEP for that, um, but it's something to know. So then looking at um, tenofovir arm alone, because that was part of this study, they had two people who had um, levels of drug resistance at 1% or greater, and then in the FTC tenofovir arm, which is, again, is most relevant for our practice now, given what we're using for PrEP in this country, um, they had five people who had detectable levels of drug resistance. And I broke out here what the mutations that they found were. They found um, all five of these people had M184V um, mutations, which is a signature mutation for FTC, 
one of the two elements, um, medications in the um, PrEP medications. And um, one patient had, sorry, the mouse keeps this here. There we go. A K65R, which is a signature tenofovir mutation. And um, M184B is important, but not the most nefarious mutation. Um, I would say K65R is much more um, kind of malignant mutation to discover because it makes tenofovir essentially um, non-effective for HIV treatment. So um, very low numbers of people who actually had um, significant levels of resistance detected. And if you look at a little more granular way at who these people were, um, they had some people who entered the study who were actually already HIV infected, and nobody knew it, because they tested people with HIV antibody tests. And we know there's a window period where the antibody tests can be negative, even though someone already is becoming, has been infected, and has an emerging uh, establishment of HIV infection um, in that window period. So some of those people who were in the study actually got PrEP. So of four people in this arm who were already infected when they started PrEP, two of them had detectable mutations, so half. So this is kind of the, the kind of worst case scenario for the emergence of resistance with PrEP, is if you don't know someone's infected when you start PrEP, ergo the conversation we started today, would you prescribe PrEP to this person right now, or do you want to make sure they have good kidney health and they're not already HIV infected? I think this says you want to be rigorous about ruling out HIV infection, but not to the point where it never actually gets started and people don't benefit from it. Um, but um, you know, these data are informative. Three of the 21 people who um, became infected in this arm were ones who were on the medication and um, were uninfected when they started PrEP and then became infected after the study started. So these are kind of breakthrough infections. If you dig in even deeper, it's not clear that all three of these people were actually taking the medicines because they only checked people's blood every three months for evidence of tenofovir, and some of them had it in their blood on the seroconversion visit, some of them didn't. But at least one of these people, it really seems like they were taking the medicine fairly regularly when they became infected, so it's a true breakthrough infection. Um, it's, interestingly, these were, um, and these people already infected to start a PrEP, both of them had M184Bs, but not K65R mutations. Um, and in this group, uh, they had both. So um, it, one person had both, and two people just had M184B. So a um, little bit of data to inform, I think, our clinical practice. The bottom line for me is make sure someone doesn't have HIV infection when you start PrEP, because that's the perfect storm for resistance. And if there are breakthrough infections, um, people still may develop resistance, but it's probably at very low rates. The people who wrote this study, it was published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases earlier this year, pointed out that over the course of the study, there were um, 121 infections averted that they, they estimated. So um, they encouraged readers of the study to, to weigh these levels of drug resistance, you know, five um, people in this arm out of 25 against all the numbers of people who may have otherwise become infected but didn't, if you look at the counterfactual example. So I think that's also it's kind of wise advice, thinking don't look at these data in a vacuum, realize that they probably averted lots of infections in this study, even though they probably created some um, drug resistance. So, um, but something to think about in terms of clinical care. Okay, so those are the evidence for and against PrEP. And um, let me briefly go through what the CDC recommends about how to actually do this. For those of you who have done this, this will be a refresher. For those who have not been thinking about doing it or counseling people about how this goes, uh, this is how they recommend doing it. Pretty straightforward in general. 
Um, first, you want to determine eligibility. So making sure someone has negative HIV tests, and um, after the conversation about making sure someone is out of the window period, this really is making sure someone is HIV uninfected. We often talk about someone's HIV positive, HIV negative, but the, the semantics here are you make, sure, make sure someone's HIV uninfected, because you can have a negative HIV antibody test, but actually be HIV infected during the window period. So the key here is, is um, HIV uninfected, and convince yourself that that's most likely the case. Someone's at high risk for HIV acquisition. Well, how do you define that? I mean, my definition and yours and yours and this patient and that patient, we all may have different ideas about what high risk is. So this is open to, to judgment, for sure. The CDC, if you look at the provider documents, gives you some advice about what are the patterns of behavior and epidemiological factors that would make someone um, probably a candidate for PrEP versus not. In fact, the vital signs report we were talking about, they applied those criteria as best they could to population-level data to come up with those numbers. So, um, but, but basically, if you think about the epidemiology I mentioned in terms of MSM, people using injection drugs, heterosexuals who may be in serodiscordant partnerships, those are the groups that they're um, recommending PrEP may be beneficial for. But you can dig into the guidelines a little bit to see exactly some of the um, um, ways that they suggest you think about who may benefit or not. You want to screen um, and treat for other sexually transmitted infections. The PROUD study is great evidence for why that's so important, um, including all the extra genital sites, including syphilis. You want to screen and vaccinate if needed for hepatitis B. The reason there is that the two medicines for PrEP, tenofovir and antitrimidine, are antiretrovirals that are also active against hepatitis B infection. So if someone has hepatitis B, active, chronic active hep B, and you give them the PrEP medications, you're treating their active hep B, like it or not. Um, and that's totally fine to treat their hepatitis B, but you really want to know beforehand that you're doing that because there have been studies with people with HIV and also hep B mono infection, where if you abruptly discontinue their hep B therapy, you can have flares of hep B virus replication that can be associated with, um, in some cases, a fulminant hepatitis. So you really want to know that when someone's, um, if they have hep B, that they're starting PrEP, that they're, they're actually someone you need to monitor carefully. If you don't feel comfortable as a clinician managing hep B as well as PrEP, then finding some specialty support for how to do that in the ID clinic or the GI clinic um, may be the way to go. I think, you know, off offline, I think things like hepatitis C and hepatitis B are going to be increasingly ID purview um, type infections. That's my, my prediction. I'm curious to hear another conversation about how hepatitis C is going here in that vein. Um, but finding some expertise might, might be helpful if you're not familiar with hep B treatment. Um, but again, nothing wrong with treating hep B um, while you're giving someone PrEP. You just have to know. If they're susceptible to hep B, you want to vaccinate them. This is a great opportunity to do that as you're having a conversation about PrEP because the epidemiology of people who may be at risk for HIV acquisition has a lot of overlap with epidemiology of those who are at risk for hep B acquisition. Pregnancy test, if people can become pregnant, um, CDC does not say you cannot give PrEP or should not give PrEP to those women who could become pregnant. It just says there are limited data. So you want to have an informed discussion that there are limited data. But in fact, um, there are studies showing that women who are HIV uninfected but pregnant in some scenarios are at quite high risk for HIV acquisition and PrEP may be something that is beneficial, beneficial to those um, women as well. Um, and um, I was having a conversation with um, Paul, who I'm not sure where 
this year, about that idea of getting um, um, women who may be pregnant and at high risk for HIV acquisition on PrEP in uh, Dharma. So if you do decide to give PrEP, it's very straightforward. It's one pill once a day of tilapavir and cytidine. Nothing more um, straightforward than that. You're advised to give condoms and risk reduction counseling along with PrEP. This is supposed to be part of comprehensive preventive services. And then monitor closely thereafter. They say every two to three months, people should come in for HIV um, antibody tests or fourth generation antibody antigen tests to make sure that people, if you're going to refill their prescriptions for PrEP, haven't become infected in the interim because you don't want to refill PrEP in that case. You want to give people HIV treatment in that case. So um, they recommend very aggressive time course here of every two to three months. I think you know, my personal opinion is people coming in every two months is great, um, but most people are not going to be amenable to that uh, frequency in, in a brief experience, um, and clinicians are quite busy too. So I think every three months feels a little bit more um, um, realistic, but these are the recommendations. At those visits, get an HIV test to make sure they're not infected before you refill their medications. Give them no more than a three-month supply so that people have a reason to come back in and get tested every three months. Do risk assessment and counseling um, for risk reduction counseling in general. And also, do they still need PrEP? Are they still in a phase of their life in terms of their behaviors? People's relationships change. People's sexual behaviors change. Maybe they benefited from PrEP in 2015, but maybe not 2016. And if PrEP's going to be cost-effective, we're going to need to have people who are not at risk for HIV acquisition using other ways to protect themselves from HIV than PrEP. But people who are at high risk, this is probably very efficacious. So the onus is on us as clinicians and as patients to communicate about risk frequently and sort out, is this a period looking forward that someone you think is going to benefit from PrEP, or is this a period where people are not. So people talk about seasons of risk in people's lives, you know, as things change, maybe it's a time when they need PrEP, and another time they don't. Um, there have been some interesting studies about um, vacation use of PrEP, where people may go on vacations where they intend to have um, more risky sexual encounters for a finite period of time, and then there are other periods when they engage in minimal or no risk behaviors. So should we start them on PrEP in anticipation of a short period where they know they're gonna be at risk? Example, some cruises where their kind of um, um, sexual behaviors are different than people's home, home lives. Um, and then after the cruise or the period of time, then to stop PrEP use. So very interesting how this is all going to pan out in clinical care and a lot of work to be done. Every six months, do a creatinine screen um, and an STI screen as well at all the extragenital sites that could be implicated. This is a link to the CDC guidelines. And um, New York State Department of Health has excellent checklists for providers. And Richard mentioned some of the people here may be interested in getting checklists and whatnot. I could send you some of our homegrown ones, but the ones on the New York State Department of Health are really quite robust and well done. So um, um, you can just Google hdguidelines.org and come up with their, their site. Okay, this is a cartoon of the clinician talking to the patient. He's shirtless in the cold room, he's got socks on. Whoa, way too much information. So this, this is how not to engage in a comprehensive sexual history. You see if someone may or may not benefit from PrEP. But you know, all jokes aside, we know that this is challenging because of provider and patient discomfort, time constraints, whole host of reasons why having kind of detailed, rich discussions about people's risk behaviors are challenging for primary care clinicians, for HIV specialists, um, 
Um, so one of the important things about PrEP is how do we get this to be routine, comprehensive risk assessment in all patients, because you really don't know who may or may not benefit from PrEP unless you ask. There's no blood test you can send. Now, people have rectal gonorrhea or syphilis. Well, that um, brings things right to the forefront of a conversation um, and may force the issue, which is actually helpful. Um, but for most people that may not have those um, factors, you have to have a conversation. So that's a whole other talk, which I'm happy to have, too, about how do we enhance our skills in communicating about um, sexual behaviors. And one of the caveats is to make no assumptions about people's um, risk for HIV acquisition, because if you ask everyone about their risk behaviors, you will find things that you maybe did not expect. And so making no assumptions, and that applies even within people in specific epidemiologic groups. Make no assumptions about the individual in front of you. For example, men who have sex with men. Um, make no assumptions that this individual versus the next versus the next is at high, medium, or low risk for HIV acquisition, and you'll, you'll do best for the patients to really make this an individualized process because we can't make generalized assumptions. These were data um, published in AIDS by a group at Emory about five years ago that I thought were really powerful in thinking about who may benefit from PrEP. What they did is they um, did some modeling studies to look at when people got HIV infected. These were um, MSM population. Did they get infected from their main partner, from people who had main partners, or from a casual partner? And what they found was that 70% of the time it was from a main partner, and that 30% of the time it was from a casual partner. Um, they also looked at what kinds of um, intercourse. 70% of the time, receptive anal intercourse, RAI. 30% of the time, insertive anal intercourse, and then very rarely oral sex. And then what about perceived partner serostatus? People became infected. What, was their, uh, what did they think their partner's HIV status was? And 18, sorry, 16, 16% of the time, um, they thought their partner was HIV infected or positive. 46% of the time, they thought they were negative. And then 30, 38% of the time, I'm sorry, I should be looking here. I need glasses. Um, uh, unknown. So most of the time, people thought their partners were either unknown or HIV uninfected, and they were often from main partners. So this upends some of the thinking about how we put people into bins about risk. And I think it's really helpful as clinicians to rejigger our thinking a bit and say, we know that um, different communities, people may be in partnerships where they have open relationships, either known or not known, and you really need to make a comfortable environment and, and a non-judgmental approach to taking a sexual history so people feel comfortable sharing with you the nuanced, intimate details of their lives. And I can tell you as someone who gets referrals for PrEP, like the, the case we started off with, it's really a challenge to get someone from like zero to 60 and create the right environment. I can also say it's actually easier in some ways because people are there and we know we're here to talk about PrEP. So sometimes people just kind of go right from zero to 60 on their own. And you say, hey, what, I say, what do you hope to accomplish during the visit today? They say, well, I'm here to talk about PrEP because X, Y, and Z, my partner, I go meet partners online, I'm a little bit worried, you know, and it's very straightforward. So it's even probably more challenging as you get deeper into routine primary care when this may seem like an out of the blue conversation. So <clears throat> different for every person, different for every clinician, but um, the challenge for us is to make this routine, non-judgmental, and effective, and make no assumptions because of these data, which are very, very tricky. Okay, some other tips, um, and I want to look to Richard and others. It's 1.32. Should I end here and ask for questions um, so that people get back to their work, or should I go for another five minutes? Five minutes? Okay, great. And if people need to go, absolutely go. Thank you very much. Um, I mentioned before, 
The CDC has this um, ice cream cone. Don't forget the triple dip, meaning aggressive, extragenital STI screens for everyone using PrEP, rectal, urine, vaginal, and pharyngeal sites, as well as um, doing syphilis serology. Not the most appetizing analogy um, that they use, <laughs> but um, it's, it's supposed to be a mnemonic to, to remember these things. Um, let me um, skip forward a little bit to one other piece of data that um, I want to present here. And um, I'm going to skip the interactive piece, and we'll, I'll give you the data, and then we'll have an uh, open conversation in general. So these are data from an, ex an open-label extension from the IPREX study, which was a study with um, men and transgender women who have sex with men, randomized to PrEP or placebo. After they figured um, out that PrEP was efficacious, they stopped the original study and said anyone who wants PrEP who is in the study can get PrEP if we can observe you for the next couple of years and just see how it plays out in a kind of more real-world use. And um, they had several hundred men who elected to use PrEP. They also asked some of the people who said they, they weren't going to take PrEP if they could observe them as well. And um, they compared the two groups as to their HIV acquisition over the next couple of years after the, this, this open-label extension of PrEP study started. It's called the OLAY, open-label extension, the IPREX OLAY. Uh, most of the IPREX study happened in um, Spanish-speaking countries, so OLAY, I think, was a nice, nice way to name it. And um, these are pharmacokinetic data. They um, took finger sticks of people's blood, and they looked at the concentration of tenofovir, one of the PrEP medicines, in their blood based on these finger sticks. And as you go rightwards on the horizontal axis, it's higher concentrations of drug in their blood based on the finger sticks. And the vertical axis here is HIV incidence, um, infections per 100 person years. And um, what they, they knew from other studies with healthy volunteers, if you had a certain concentration of drug on the finger stick, about how many doses per week that correlated to in terms of drug taking behavior, because they had directly observed therapy for some people, and they did finger sticks, and they made these correlations. And um, um, they wanted to see if people had greater um, levels of drug in their blood, did they have greater protection from PrEP? So this red line represents the people in the study who said, I don't want to use PrEP, but you can follow me over time. The incidence rate was about 2.5%. So 100 men each year, 2.5 became infected with HIV. Um, in the PrEP group, which is the blue line here, if you were in the category where the drug levels were less than two tablets per week, there was no protection at all. If you enter the category of two to three tablets per week based on the levels of drug in your blood, they found substantial levels of protection with an incidence rate of about 0.5% per year, about a fifth of the incidence rate as the red line here. If you had four or more doses per week, equivalent um, levels of drug, they saw no infections at all, highly, highly protective. So the bottom line here is clinicians, this is for MSM, this may not translate to people who have receptive vaginal sex as their mode of transmission or injection drug use. So big caveat here. Um, for the study for MSM, um, the bottom line is clinicians, if someone misses a dose on occasion of daily PrEP, they probably still get very high levels of protection. There's a forgiveness factor here, which is really great to see. Um, again, this may not translate to women where Pharmacokinetics suggest it may have to be maybe less of a forgiveness factor, and maybe taking more like six or seven doses a week is still necessary to have high, high levels of protection. Um, but anyway, this as a clinician, I think is helpful information to think about um, the forgiveness factor. The last two things I'll mention is that there's a study looking at on-demand PrEP, where people would take a double dose of PrEP the day before sex, and then a single dose each day they were having sex, 
for people who had intermittent um, sexual exposure, and then they would take it just for two days after an exposure and then stop. And that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of weeks ago, called the Ypres-Gay study. They found an 86% efficacy for that regimen. Caveats there is that, um, on average, the men in that study took about, this was about 300 MSM in Europe and Canada. The men had about four pills per week they were taking on average, which starts to look a lot like what I'm telling you here offers great protection. So they didn't really present data on people who truly had intermittent risk and just took a few pills a month just had truly intermittent exposure. So I don't know that it's ready for prime time to use episodic prep yet, but more discussions to come about that. Let me end there and see if people have any kinds of questions. Happy to stay longer too, but I don't want people to fall behind in their day. Thank you so much for um, inviting me. This is great. The question about costs, great, great question. So um, if you had no insurance coverage whatsoever, the, just the over-the-counter cost of the medication would be about $12,000 a year. And, that would, and then you'd have to add on to that testing and care. But almost all the insurances will cover this, in our experience, at least in Massachusetts. So the key is if someone's insured, there may be some copay issues. And um, you're welcome to have my slides here. I have a slide here about Gilead, who makes this, has a copay assistance program. And then there's another patient assistance network. So, so almost everyone can get PrEP if they go through some channels in terms of the financial issues. I'll ask one of the many questions. I have a patient that you inside the implementation, which is just such a big discussion. I had one patient, a infected patient, who at time of diagnosis, this was almost six months ago, had 184 in the next population and on further question, it turns out he'd been taking the drug for perhaps buying it on the street. There's no way that inconsistent supply. And clearly it's been very intermittent. Is there, and obviously there's a lot of reason for people engaged in care to get prescribed for that. Is there much sense of how much um, screens Truvada is It's a great question. So how much how much um, street Truvada or black market Truvada is being passed around? I don't know of any major studies. There have been a couple of point surveys where they found very rare people reporting it. But I, I, I don't know there's been a great rigorous population level study for this. And then anecdotally, I've heard no more than anecdotes about this. But um, as there's more Truvada prescribed for PrEP, um, in, you know, aside from HIV treatment where it's been available, um, I certainly think it's something to think about. And certainly when you prescribe it to counsel people that this is a biobehavioral intervention where clinical care is essential for safety for you, for safety for your partners. This is not something that is to be shared. It's a prescription medication just like opiates and the next um, um, level of medications that we have. So can we control it 100%? No. Do we need more studies to figure out if this is happening? Absolutely. Um, I haven't heard of a strong signal, but if you've heard of something otherwise, I encourage you to report it because we need to know. Yes? I'm not sure how to ask this, but in a non-monogamous MSM relationship, is there ever a time that counseling could be of some value to transfer that relationship from having ongoing prep to switching over? 
in, in that relationship to not have to do that. Am I expressing this one? I'll try to rephrase it then. Correct me if I got it wrong. You're saying maybe there are couples where PrEP is something used for a while, and over time, they switch to other preventive medication, yes. preventive um, approaches, yes. like condom use or other approaches, um, kind of starting on PrEP and then de-escalating. Is that, is that right? And de-escalating through meaningful, they're altering their relationship based on recognizing the issues. And <coughs> I think it's, a, it's an excellent point, and um, I think that's, that's the goal. The, the goal you're looking for is to figure out a way to um, figure out what's right for each situation, and. Um, if PrEP is something that starts a conversation within a relationship about HIV prevention in general, and then over time you realize there are less expensive, less medication-oriented ways to get to the same point, I think it's a, a great but goal. The adverse of that, by using PrEP, you delay or, or not allow that potential for uh, improvement in the relationship to occur. I see. Thank you for um, clarifying and correcting. Um, it's a good question. Will people jump to PrEP when they would have um, figured out other approaches without PrEP? Um, hard to know. I mean, I think the counterfactual, in a way, is what's been happening for a long time. Um, but but you, you're probably right that there may be couples who would take some time, or individuals who would take some time and um, have a kind of aha moment about their behaviors and their protective interventions that could have gotten to a place of, of greater safer sex, greater safety with safe sex than um, with PrEP. So I think it's a very good point. Um, hard, hard to know how to approach that. I guess, I guess my standpoint would be, I wouldn't withhold PrEP from anyone who requested it and had um, risk, in risk behaviors that would suggest benefit um, for the theoretical possibility they could get there otherwise. But like I started um, the conversation about exploring barriers to common use as point A, I think it's always worth starting. You know, what have you already been doing or thought about and, and also um, coming to the table with some of the potential harms and negatives around PrEP use of web as well, so people can make kind of informed, individualized decisions. And one of the research projects that I've been working on is, is come up with a shared decision-making intervention for PrEP, which is based on principles from general medicine, you know, where there isn't a right answer for everyone about PSA testing or the use of chemoprophylaxis to prevent MIs. Can we use those paradigms for PrEP so that people can make individualized decisions at the start and then over time. So I think I think you hit an important point and hard, hard to know. Questions? Great. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.